We have to disrupt ourselves before other people disrupt us. There's no playbook. Saying no to technology is not an option. Fundamentally, I think the biggest problem in digital is not enough discussion about what really moves the needle and how soon. The array of challenges that are coming is so different and so much more rapid fire than we've seen before in this industry. Welcome to Disruption Matters, a podcast produced by Private Equity International in partnership with series sponsor Alex Partners that delves into the forces that are reshaping our world and how the private markets can not only address these changes, but emerge stronger from them. In today's episode, we'll be looking at the revolution in workplace dynamics that's been occurring over the last couple of years and what that means in the long term. As always, I'm joined by my colleague, Rob Katecki. Rob, how are you? Do you really want to know? Sure. I'd be better with a raise. <laughs> well, Rob, as we've recently learned, pay is not the only way to motivate employees. I don't know. It's pretty compelling. But you're right. The old model of throwing money at staff to keep their heads down and never leave the office doesn't work anymore, especially for millennials and Gen Z. But you're a boomer, right? I'll pretend to be 70 if it means more money. Look, I think one of the hindrances to solving today's workforce issues is talking in these generalizing cliches. Real wages have lagged for 40-odd years, and after a little uptick, we're seeing inflation gobble up any gains that have been recently made. So wages do matter in real terms, but so does job satisfaction and the chance to grow. What complicates it even further is that job satisfaction and the chance to grow are in the eyes of the beholder. So, you know, what encourages one worker, say an ambitious deadline, can overwhelm another. And then there's the trick of making sure the right person is in the right role. That's easy. Which is why people never, ever resign. Why does that sound wrong? mostly because it is. But, you know, look, I think it's time to bring in some experts to discuss the status quo, as volatile as that may be. Here's Jim Scarfoni of MidOcean Partners. When you think back the last two, two and a half years, the velocity of change that's occurred in the workplace, you know, everything from going home to live through a pandemic to all the political issues that we've had to deal with, to even now heading into potentially a recession, right? And the great resignation in the middle. And that's just a ton of change that I think every employer has had to deal with. And having been in an HR function for many years, there's no playbook. There may not be a playbook, but that's not stopping anyone from trying to write one. Here's Warren Volmanis from Two Sigma. One of the things that you know we're really focused on at Two Sigma Impact is labor force participation has been decreasing for 20 years. It was at 67% back in 2002. It's at 62% today. It dipped during the COVID period, but it has remained stubbornly low and it has been on a trend line that is decreasing for 20 years. The other thing that's happening is you know, the nature of work is changing. The skills needed are changing. And yet our education system is not keeping pace with that change. So we have big, big issues that, you know, secular issues. And so our view is that COVID only exacerbated an existing trend. It didn't create something new. You know, if you're in, you know, investing in companies and you're on boards and you want to address that, and there's two ways that you can do it. One is you can take a 360 view of the workforce of a company and you can start thinking about everybody at your company, how you motivate them. Private equity has a history of looking at the top people and giving them lots of stock options and all kinds of stuff like that. Our view is you got to look at the company from top to bottom. You got to evaluate the quality of the jobs and the quality of the organization from top to bottom. The second thing is, you know, there's a major skills gap underlying all the things that I just mentioned. 
And you got to start investing in training. You know, I think a lot of workers invest in their own training, their own education. And I think increasingly in companies are investing in internal mobility and career progression and people to fill all those empty spots. IBM, two or three years ago, when Ginny Romerty was CEO, did a really interesting piece of analysis that showed that the half-life of an employee's skill set was three years. That was Simon Freakley, the CEO of Alex Partners. And so unless we are recreating our skill set every three years, you know, we're only 50% as relevant as we were before. And so what that tells us is that we have to continually, individually, but also as corporations and governments, invest in the constant retraining of employees to make sure that as we do reap the benefits of a synthesis between human capital and artificial intelligence tools, that people do have relevant skill sets to be able to do that. I think if we look closely, it's more than any single issue around employees. The psychological contract between employer and employee is changing in some fundamental ways. Uh, to talk about that, here's Ted Belelli's chief talent officer at Alex Partners. It's interesting you use the term psychological contract, which is a concept promoted by two of my old mentors, Chris Argerus and Harry Levinson of the Harvard Business School 60, 50 years ago. The psychological contract is really the expectations and beliefs and obligations that are perceived by both sides, by management and by employees. And we're seeing a huge shift in those perceived expectations, right? So we know Gen Z has certain expectations of its leaders. And in order to work for your company, they're gonna need to see that contract fulfilled. What are they looking for? They're looking for ethical leadership. They're looking for employers that are concerned about their health. And the work that we're doing with management teams throughout private equity, there are a lot of middle-aged CEOs and middle-aged investors that are not quite getting the fact that the psychological contract has changed. I don't think anyone disputes that expectations have changed, but what should employers do? Here's one theory from Alan Goldfarb of Orangewood Partners. You know, the number one challenge is really recruitment, retention, and motivation of good young talent. And from our perspective, we look at three key things. One, creativity is key. And so there's a lot of new and different types of jobs and no longer is it two years here, two years there, two, you know, like a typical older, you know, school career progression. But what can we do to be creative and help people accomplish what they want in their careers and, and lives? Two is a sense of community. You know, I think it's become clear it was happening. And I think the last two years, we have really interesting bookends that we've never seen before. On one side, you have a global pandemic. And on the other side, you have worldwide uncertainty between the China-Russia and potential uh, political issues going on in China and other parts of the world. And so what's going on in between that? People, I think, are looking to take a real sense of community. And so how do you get involved and how do you help people get involved in their communities, whether it's charitable things and not just giving money to charities, but getting people involved? And then the third really ties it all together is giving people opportunities to try different things. That makes sense in terms of key priorities, but Adam Blumenthal of Blue Wolf Capital shared a great story about changing the psychological contract by simply offering employees a real share in the company's fortune. You know, stock options, they're not revolutionary, but until now, the rank and file of middle market companies haven't enjoyed them. Here's what Blue Wolf did at a company that makes chair casters down in Jonesboro, Arkansas. 
what we're doing here is we're taking X percent of the company, in this case, five, six percent of the company, and we're broadly dividing it up between everybody who works here. And, you know, if we make our underwriting plan, you know, it's going to turn out that the average person in this company is going to walk away, you know, with between six and 12 months pay as a payday when we get our exit. And is that the whole solution to this? I don't know, but that's a different way of thinking about what's the relationship. And we're going to talk to you about it every quarter and we're going to ask you questions and we're going to try to treat everybody here the way 30 years ago we started treating teachers senior management. So, and it was a remarkable thing. You're in a tent in Jonesboro, Arkansas, cutting a ribbon on a new factory. People whose dads and moms and grandparents worked for this company. And a guy comes up to me, you know, actually commutes up from Alabama to be an assistant plant manager here. And he said, you know, 50 years old, he says, I've been waiting my whole life to work for a company that would say that. That assistant plant manager knows exactly how he defines a good job, which is the heart of the matter, isn't it? How do you get employees to feel like they have a good job? Here's Warren from Two Sigma again. So uh, we did a bunch of research on this. We did you know, a whole bunch of work with a consulting firm over a year and a half. And we showed that there are really these four things that matter in terms of creating a good, a high quality job that's both motivating to the employee and creates long-term value for the company. It's those four things. It's fair treatment, promising future, a sense of purpose and mission, and a sense of psychological safety. And we're actually doing a whole bunch more research right now to look at how those qualities correlate with stock performance in the public markets, because you know, we're, we're believers that this picture requires not just a focus on pay, that's very important, but it requires a 360 view of what the employee cares about and empowering leadership teams at companies to deliver on those things. This raises the question, what do employees care about? Now, of course, that varies person to person, and it complicates any effort. But some folks are ramping up efforts to truly understand employees' values and priorities even before the deal is signed. Here's Emmanuel Lallier of TKL Capital. The thing, the element that is the most difficult to address in the due diligence that we are conducting, because it's difficult just to assess and to measure how happy people are at work. Is it a good place to work? We are doing that now with more and more ESG-focused due diligence, and the S is here to address that topic through various elements. And also, I would say we are being more conscious about that, we are spending more and more time also in the interactions that we have with the management to understand how they are integrating that those elements in their management, in their business plan, in the way they are managing their company. So I think that's more and more the company now have to demonstrate that they are taking care of the employees, but they are also taking care of the planet. We integrate that in the due diligence process. So it can be also a deal killer. So we can decide not to invest if this due diligence is not satisfactory enough. But if the score is low, but the management is really committing to improve that and they have started to look more and at, at those elements and to improve the way they are conducting the business, we can decide to invest. And in that case, we will follow the progress year after year in a yearly due diligence reporting that is non-financial reporting to measure the progress and to measure how much we can improve on that front. That certainly raises the stakes for any managers to keep their employees happy. Here's Jim from MidOcean. We're at a point where the role of leadership and the role of management has changed. And I think the pandemic kind of brought us to this point where, you know, people now want all sorts of different issues and requirements in order for them to work or to stay with your company, right? 
build their career with you, right? So when I think about kind of the last 25, 30 years, right? Most companies were built around this, this idea that, you know, we hire employees, they come to work for us, we have a set of policies, we do things a certain way, and everyone kind of falls in line. You come to the office, you work in an office Monday to Friday, and that's all changed, right? And so that brings a new level of complexity into the workplace that I don't know that management is really ready to manage complexity. And that means that we have to open our minds to be more flexible with employees. You know, we have four generations in the workplace. Each generation has their own set of requirements. We have people who want to work from home. We have people who want different schedules or want to work in a different state. I mean, that's complexity that we just haven't really dealt with. And I think managers now are being forced to deal with that. If they have a team of people, some work remote, some work in a different state, some need this, some need that, some want career progression immediately. That's complexity that takes a different style of leadership. And I think we have to train people on how to do that. It doesn't come natural. That pressure to please so many different constituencies can take its toll on managers, according to Ted from Alex Partners. One of our surveys indicated that burnout was the number one worry of senior managers. And I think that's where the the concept of culture comes in, of support, of leadership that kind of gets it, that balances people with profits and that are able to pivot to a stronger management culture, which historically hasn't been there, but we're really going to need that going forward. Yet again, what does that stronger management culture look like? How is it different than what people are doing now? Alan Goldfarb of Orangewood had this to say. I think communication is really key because not all employees are the same. Some care about money, some care about equity, some care about flexible work schedule, Some people care about career progression or they don't care about career progression. And it doesn't make them a good employee or a bad employee. It just makes them, you know, different. And, you know, one of the things that we've learned over time is that going to ownership, in addition to what Adam said about equity and things like that, we agree with all that. But to further that thought is ownership of new ideas. And it's not just new ideas of a new product or a new service that we can build or create. It's more of ownership of ideas. As an example, we have a portfolio company that's in the restaurant business, quick service restaurant business, and we have a bunch of stores in Louisville, Kentucky. And during the COVID pandemic, one of the biggest issues was uh, kids couldn't get warm meals because where they were getting warm meals is at school. And you know that's a big part of our population was getting warm meals at schools and schools were closed. And so one of our employees came up with this brilliant idea where every Friday we would provide tacos and other warm meals. We partnered with the Boys and Girls Club and some other community programs within Louisville, Kentucky. And it was amazing. And the employees really felt the sense of ownership. They really felt the sense of pride. That was an amazing experience to see. And it goes to the communication. We listen to ideas and it goes to the sense of ownership. So I think that that's something else I just wanted to highlight. It's an amazing way to think about building an ownership culture that goes well beyond financial compensation. And it gets to the heart of what motivates regular folks, which in a shocking turn may not be the same thing that drives the investor class. We've got this habit in corporate America today of saying, you know, shareholder value, like that's the reason companies exist. That's Warren from Two Sigma again. You know, that's not a very motivating concept to the average worker. You know, who gets up in the morning going, I can't wait to go and add value for shareholders that I never met, who from my perspective probably have more than enough money already. But 
if you're doing things like what Alan described, you know, people do come and, do, and actually do sort of say, hey, gosh, maybe I'll show up early today because you know, that's motivating to me. And I think that so many companies leave opportunities on the table because most companies do exist for a reason, but you wouldn't know it by reading their mission statements. You know, there's so many vacuous, you know, empty statements, you know, platitudes out there. And I think when a company truly invests in that process of motivating its workers with mission and purpose, amazing things can happen. I, for one, can do without another mission statement full of empty buzzwords. But it's hard to toss out a lot of the platitudes that have been living in the C-suite for decades now. And this new, more nimble and substantial management style is going to be taxing. If it was obvious or easy, everyone would have done it already. Another issue that's just as vital is recruitment. Making sure that you set yourself up for success by hiring the right folks to begin with. Here again is Adam from Blue Wolf. About half of our portfolio is in healthcare services. It's an interesting place to be because the jobs really do have meaning and mission, right? If you're taking care of uh, people with intellectual and developmental disabilities in group homes, if you're staffing and managing an urgent care center in central Brooklyn, it's pretty clear. That said, industries where people suffer from burnout and extremely high levels of turnover, you'd be hard-pressed to put somebody, you know, north on those metrics of healthcare services. You want to try something tough, try hiring a nurse in Michigan. I think it speaks to the challenges of figuring out what the contract is. It's not that nurses don't want to work, right? They do. And they're very, they have jobs which have an intrinsic mission. They're caregivers, right? We see immediate impact from what you're doing. There's personal relationships with people. Frequently, you're working in your community. And yet, people leave those jobs in droves. And it's very hard to retain people. But when you really go in and re-engineer your recruitment pipeline, your training processes, and say, are we making it as easy as possible for people to be hired? Do we have a good theory about who are the people who are going to want to stay in this job and why? Do we think we know who those people are and can we sort and predict and hire the people who are going to be happy? The answers tend to be we never really thought about doing that before, right? In a world where unemployment was higher, and where some of the other sort of quality of life factors that people came to value over the last few years had less valence, you didn't have to be great at answering those questions. But now one certainly does. The issue we found is that the answers aren't easy to find. But here's Warren from Two Sigma. This question of you know who's the right person for which job and how little science there is around that today is actually you know, striking. Uh, more than half of Americans work and there's no process by which, you know, there's no sort of concrete process by which you can figure out what's the right job for you. You know, this question, you know, it's an important one for the worker. It's a critical one for the employer. When you've got high turnover, it's got something to do with what Adam just said. You're, you're hiring the wrong people for the roles. You know, we own a business called Circle of Care that does pediatric you know, autism therapy, as well as uh, speech therapy and other forms of physical and, and occupational therapy. And the interesting thing about Circle of Care is they've decided that they're going to start you know, training people for higher levels of acuity so that they can actually you not know, to go hire these folks, which are really hard to hire. They're going to start training them. They created a, a thing called EBH University, where they're training uh, you know, autism therapists to be able to handle more complicated cases. And you're seeing this all over the healthcare services. I think HCA, the large hospital group, just recently bought a 
nurse training platform. And so I think employers have got to evolve along, you know, very much along the lines that were just described. You know, they've got to figure out who are the right types of folks to hire, and then they got to provide that support so that they can grow, which is good for the employee and good for the company. This is a fascinating way to think about recruitment and retention, where the employer acts as an educator as well. Ted at Alex Partners noted another welcome innovation that looks beyond accreditation as a means to prove one's competency. There's a movement away from hire the resume to really higher skills. And so, you know, looking at non-traditional candidates, using formal talent assessment tools to really dig in and see, you know, who can do the job and not just go by the resume, which has been, you know, too long just a kind of static process, but really looking at talent, looking at what the talent can do, using formal talent assessment and assessment tools to be able to do that, I think is a wonderful new trend. It's being used out of necessity to find the workers, but it also, it's a win-win because it allows the employer to find people and it allows the people to actually explore areas and demonstrate what they're good at or what they could potentially be good at in a world that they otherwise couldn't. And key to letting people explore these areas is being proactive and building awareness that these jobs are in reach. Here's Jim from MidOcean. One of the things we did was one of our internal executives here, Candace, who oversees compliance and ESG, she started a women's awareness initiative. And the goal here, the objective was to bring more awareness to this industry, private equity, financial services, investment banking, to kids that are in high school kids that are thinking about, you know, careers. And so we started this program where on a quarterly basis, we will host events. We will invite women, minorities across, you know, all of our networks. It's broad-based. We see a lot of high school kids joining, college kids. We bring on speakers who talk about their journey in private equity. We talk about kind of how to get into the financial services industry and investment banking or private equity. While this isn't revolutionary this year, we went out and hired two kids out of college without investment banking experience, bring them in as an analyst. We've created a training program. We'll give them intense training for a three to four week period, and we'll give them exposure to our deal teams. So they're gonna be on a steeper learning curve but it has allowed us to go outside of that traditional hiring pool, which is investment banking analysts, hand select some people that we think have potential and bring them in and train them. I think what he said points to a great place to land here because I think it's vital to note the right candidate might not be found in the usual places. And expanding the circle of opportunity is a value just about every generation appreciates. I think more should be made of the fact that these initiatives go a long way to making folks proud to work at a given firm. And that pride can give management the time and space to manage all these competing expectations. But as Warren says, that's going to take time. Our view is this isn't a two-year thing. This is a 20, 30, 40-year thing that needs to be addressed. Certainly food for thought. And with that in mind, I'm going to let Alex Partner CEO, Simon Freakley, have the last word. Now, we shared this soundbite earlier in the series, but I wanted to play it back again because I think it's a philosophy that really embodies what management teams and operators need to keep front of mind as they approach disruption and all of these issues we've covered in this series. We say to management teams, literally pace over perfection. Don't wait for the perfect strategy. Just lean in and start executing the strategy that works today. I guess you could also say, if you're not moving forward, you're falling behind. On our next and final episode of the Disruption Matters mini-series, we'll be discussing how all these kinds of disruption inform the planning and budgeting process. 
As you might imagine, it's a balancing act of respecting the risks without ignoring the potential that's worth capturing. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Goodbye for now.